Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 25th of May, 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. And we're delighted to be joined by Vanessa Beely and Debbie Evans. Um, well, a quick reminder, first of all, of Liz Truss speaking at uh, giving her Mansion House speech uh, a month or so ago. And she said, uh, at the time, we need a global NATO. By that, I don't mean extending the membership to those from other regions. Uh, I mean that NATO must have a global outlook ready to tackle global threats. And now, of course, uh, we can presume that that was a slight fib by uh, Liz Truss, suggesting that, that she doesn't mean extending the membership because we've already covered the fact that South Korea and Japan are very much heading in that direction. Um, but uh, the point is that statement and then subsequent statements uh, where she was talking about NATO's global outlook and the Indo-Pacific region, uh, she was hinting once again at uh, China, of course, uh, and so it's probably no surprise then. Yesterday, the BBC uh, carried this headline, Chinese police files reveal uh, human cost of Uyghur detention. Um, and Liz Truss, uh, uh, to go with this uh, re release, and we'll come on to this in more detail with Vanessa in a second, uh, produced uh, a statement and she said today, further shocking details of China's human rights violations in Xinjiang have emerged, uh, which add to the already extensive body of evidence from Chinese government documents, first-hand testimony, satellite imagery, and visits by our own diplomats to the region. New evidence shows the extraordinary scale of China's targeting of Uyghur Muslims and other ethnic minorities, including forced labor, severe restrictions on freedom of religion, uh, and separation of parents from their children, forced birth control, and mass incarceration. So that was the statement from Liz Truss. Uh, and if you clicked on the link on the front page of the uh, BBC website, uh, this was the headline, Vanessa. Uh, Xinjiang mm. police files inside a Chinese internment camp. Yeah, I mean, you know, once again, I urge everyone with these kind of reports to look at the context and the timing, very important, and we'll come on to that in a minute. Um, but effectively, I mean, this entire report was actually given to the BBC in 2021 by an organization called uh, Victims of Communism. Um, and if we move on, I'll let you know about this organization, the Organization for the Victims of Communism, I think Memorial Fund, um, Mike, the next slide. Yes. So so this is uh, the <laughs> website that they've set up on this yeah. uh, called the Xinjiang Police Files. And it says there unprecedented yeah. evidence from internal police networks in China's Xinjiang region uh, pr provides uh, or proves prison-like nature of re-education camps. Uh, shows top Chinese leaders' direct involvement in the mass internment campaign. Um, so that's, well, what are they talking about here? They're saying uh, re-education camps, but prison-like uh, nature. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, th this is very reminiscent to me of the reports that were used to criminalise uh, the Syrian government, of course, including the Amnesty International Sadnaya prison report, which everyone hopefully can remember, which was extensively debunked, including by the former British ambassador to Syria, who had actually uh, visited Sadnaya prison and totally tore into the Amnesty International report. Amnesty, of course, had to backpedal on that report later and admitted that the majority of the evidence had been produced on um, by computer program in London. But let's have a look at this organization, um, Victims of Communism. 
this is taken from their web page. I urge everyone to go and look at it and, and see what they think of this organization. But if we look at uh, one of the um, primary pages, communism killed over 100 million. So we kind of we kind of know where this is going. I mean, the, the, this is the new, the neo-McCarthyism, right, in full swing. This organization was established by effectively uh, the U.S. State Department, uh, Bill Clinton to be exact. It was then further um, honored, let's say, by President George W. Bush, um, who um, inaugurated the Victims of Communism Memorial statue in Washington, D.C. Um, if we go to uh, the next... Uh, so we've got their, got vision, right, their vision here, a, a world yeah. free from the false hope of communism. Uh, and yeah. uh, they have a, a whole section on this. I mean, we recommend that people uh, uh, go and have a look yeah. at this. And their mission is to educate future generations about yeah. the ideology, history and legacy of communism. So as I said, you know, this is latter day McCarthyism. I mean, when you go into the education section, they are educating people to... Um, distance themselves from communism, to put it politely, across a various, um, a variety of platforms, including, of course, social media. They are 16 kilometers by car away from Langley, uh, Central Intelligence Agency in Washington, D.C. Now, that should come as no surprise, because actually a number of the members of this organization, members of the board, members of the committee, advisory committee, um, if we can move on, Mike, to the first, uh, to the CEO and the president, the building itself, um, when I looked into it on Google Maps, in 2021, it's actually showing, it's difficult to see on there, Price Waterhouse. Of course, Price Waterhouse has been instrumental in covering up an awful lot of British government and US government um, crimes, particularly those of outreach um, agents, such as Mayday Rescue, the Mayday Rescue um, fraud that was brought to to um, to to investigation. Sorry, prior to the death of James Lemaitre, was covered up by Price Waterhouse. So first of all, we have um, the chairman Edwin J. Filner. Again, I urge people to go to the website because I know we're short on time today. But just from a look at his uh, bio, he is extremely well connected to U.S. State Department um, and various uh, associated agencies. But then if we go to um, Ethan, sorry, Ambassador Andrew Bremberg. Bremberg was the former, um, he's the president and CEO of the Victims of Communism Mem Memorial Foundation but previously served as the representative of the United States, the Office of the United Nations, and other international organizations in Geneva. Now, um, the video that I want to play now very quickly is one minute of demonstration of what this organization stands for and how they uh, revise history to fit to their twisted version of historical events. Thank you very much for having me with you today, giving me the opportunity to speak to Vietnamese all around the world. We are facing a tragedy today with the invasion by Russia in Ukraine. But this is a tragedy that many of you should be familiar with. We have seen a KGB agent, a former Soviet operator, 
a want-to-be communist dictator, someone who is trying to rehabilitate the image of Joseph Stalin and recreate a Soviet empire, bring a brutal totalitarian reign on free people in Ukraine. And I know all too well the pain and experience that Vietnamese around the world suffered under the hands of brutal communists in North Vietnam. Today, we see the same types of atrocities and attacks on civilians, women, children, schools, hospitals take place that we've seen from countless communist dictators in the past. <laughs> well, we're, we're, also, <laughs> we're also smiling, Vanessa. And I, funny, but I thought it was America that uh, did quite a bit of damage in <laughs> Vietnam. At one well, stage, I mean, there was a America new war there. That, yeah, but not only America. I mean, historically, the French colonialists also uh, starved, carried out ethnic cleansing programs, forced labor, forced education, etc., etc., even prior to the American offensive, which, of course, used Napal. I, I mean, it's, I, it's quite incredible that this address was to the Vietnamese people. <laughs> I mean... And yes. by the way, Putin is not a communist. Russia is not a communist country. I mean, they're absolutely stuck in some kind of insane time warp. As I say, we've, we've been transported back probably 70, 80 years, right? And this, I mean, it's, it's, it is really quite beyond belief. And then if we look at um, their Human Rights Award laureates, okay, so in 2021, Alexei Navalny, the CIA uh, opposition man in uh, Russia, the movie, uh, the San Isidro movement, I'll say it that way. Uh, Grey Zone have done a very good article on that. Um, again, another uh, US State Department CIA uh, engineered movement to uh, disrupt and destabilize Cuba. Ilham Toti, again, I've, I've had a very quick look through these, but uh, the Chinese government accuse him of violent separatism and inciting violence, so working with the Uyghur separatists. Uh, Chen Kuishi uh, was uh, present during the Tiananmen Square incident, which again, of course, has been proven by many senior analysts to be another US-engineered coup false flag. Mother Mushroom, <laughs> Mother Mushroom was the name of a Vietnamese uh, blogger who, after her detention by the Vietnamese, was uh, was uh, allowed to uh, was extradited to the U.S. The U.S. State Department were involved in her release. I haven't looked into the others, but just to give an indication of who this organization are honoring. Um, and then, if we look at the countries, you have obviously China. Um, can you read them, Mike? Cuba. Uh, uh, North Korea. Yeah, Syria is on there as well, I think. And, and but I, I don't yeah. see. Yeah. So uh, no, I can't. I can't quite read those. So, but yeah, yeah, no, sorry. But yeah, I mean, basically, they're targeting what they consider to be uh, communist countries. And of course, this is something. For example, Syria, the last seventy-five years of uh, regime change projects by the CIA and the MI6 have been on the basis of Syria's ties to communism. 
uh, originally, of course, to the USSR and then to Russia, although we will keep pointing out that Russia is far from a communist country. Then if we look at um, the people who are behind this actual uh, report on the Uyghurs that has just been released. So first of all, we have uh, Ethan Gutman, China Studies Research Fellow. I'll just read out uh, the part that he has provided briefings for the United States Congress, the Central Intelligence Agency, the European Parliament, and the United Nations. A former foreign policy analyst at the Brookings Institution, um, Gutman has appeared on PBS, CNN, BBC, and CNBC. In 2017, Gutman was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, probably the same year as the White Helmets in Syria. Then if we go on to uh, Adrian Zentz, PhD, um, again, uh, this guy has been heavily involved in criminalizing China. Um, independent analyst Brian um, Berletic, who has uh, his YouTube channel, uh, The New Atlas. He was previously, of course, known as Tony Cartolucci. Mike, if you can just um, switch yeah. on. Um, has done uh, an excellent deep dive into one of Zentz's previous reports and claims of coerced labor in Xinjiang, China. I urge everyone to go to his channel and to watch this particular report. And he also did a later deep dive into an AP associated press report uh, on Xinjiang, which is quite amusing. So if we look at this, this is on the left. Uh, it's the um, Friends of Tibet. Friends of Tibet, thank you, my eyesight. Um, who are stating in a tweet, uh, I think yesterday, that the BBC actually received these documents in 2021, and we'll come on to that in a second as to why the BBC has chosen now to release these documents. So, Zentz, that um, uh, Berletic has basically said as a, as a fraud, his reports are full of really sort of incendiary claims and very little evidence. And I would say that this report is very similar to his previous ones. But what's interesting in his little video introduction, he states that the information they have was directly obtained from hacking into police. <laughs> um, which, you know, we'll, we'll come on to that shortly also. Um, if we can go on, Mike. Right. Well, here's here's the image from from the uh, UN visit to China that uh, that was taking place over the last couple of days. Uh, this was uh, what mm. they were the tweeting out. This is the U U United Nations Human Rights uh, Organization, and and this was the the way it was covered in the Independent, Xinjiang in Focus, as UN Rights Chief arrives for China visit. Yeah, I mean, this is the first visit since two thousand and five. And I have to say that the, the, the British Foreign Office is probably putting the most pressure on Michelle Bachelet, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, to investigate Xinjiang. They have been hounding her to make sure that she gets full access, that she basically comes back with the report that they would like to see. Just a quick look at the BBC's reaction um, to the hack of the Integrity Initiative files, which of course exposed the BBC role um, in an entire propaganda consortium. Um, and of course, they didn't like being hacked into. And yet the hypocrisy here is that basically this report was produced from hacking into the computers of uh, Xinjiang police. And yet that's okay, because it serves UK foreign policy. 
Um, then I just want to talk quickly about um, the reality of the Uyghurs. We've, we've touched on it um, previously, very briefly. And actually, in one of Berlitek's reports, he points out that in 2014, up until 2016, um, mainstream media was effectively calling out the Uyghurs. Even the BBC in 2014 put out a report about the extremism in Xinjiang. Now, the Uyghurs now are known to be associated with ISIS, of course, the reason for US-UK coalition presence in northeast Syria, where they're occupying oil reserves. Um, and it was uh, a Uyghur suicide bomber who carried out uh, the suicide bombing in Kunduz in Afghanistan in 2021, killing over 100 uh, Shia Muslims. Um, it's a documented fact, uh, Dr. Bashar al-Jafri at the UN has uh, stated the fact that Saudi Arabia is uh, financing the bringing of more than 5,000 Uyghurs per year for Hajj to, uh, to pil pilgrimage in Saudi Arabia, and they have an extended stay to be radicalized and to be uh, brainwashed into extremist, violent mentality and ideology. In Syria alone, in Idlib, we have um, I, estimates vary between 10,000 to 25,000 Uyghurs fighting in the last remaining Al-Qaeda stronghold in um, the northwest in Idlib. In Afghanistan, of course, the U.S., Hillary Clinton, weaponized them uh, as they did Al-Qaeda, etc., and also AQAP from Yemen that is now Al-Qaeda back in Yemen since they left Afghanistan. But they weaponized uh, the Saudi-funded and Saudi-weaponized and Saudi-radicalized Uyghurs against Russia in Afghanistan. And of course, those Uyghurs are now gathering on the border um, with Xinjiang, with the threat to return into Xinjiang and to continue with their violent um, operations. Of course, mainland China has also seen vicious attacks. In southern China, there was the, um, the knife attack. There were uh, suicide bombing attacks, even in uh, Bangkok, not to forget that. Um, and as I said, if people go back to 2016, to Time magazine, for example, to the BBC, um, you'll find uh, articles where they talk about Uyghur extremists joining ISIS poses a security and economic headache for China's Xi Jinping. Okay, so, so at this point, they were accepting um, that Uyghur militants previously used in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Syria and Iraq um, have used bloody tactics to agitate for greater autonomy domestically. Following a spate of bus bombings and attempted plane hijackings in the 1990s and 2000s, in October 2013, a blazing car was driven into Beijing's iconic Tiananmen Square in an attack that killed five and injured dozens. On March the 1st, 2014, eight knife-wielding assailants ran amok at Kunming's train station in Yunnan province in southern China, leaving 29 civilians and four perpetrators dead. So these, you know, these radical elements are not the innocents in this. And what we have to remember is that China's programs to try and integrate Uyghurs into society is having a huge amount of success. And yes, they are offering jobs. As Berlitek points out, they are not coercing people into labor. They are offering them 
jobs. They are retraining them. They are reintegrating them into society. And actually, again, if people go um, to wherever they want to, to Brave, to Google, wherever, and put in Xinjiang tourism 2022, you will see a huge number of websites offering packages to go to Xinjiang and spend time there. Would China be opening its doors to foreign tourists to come into a genocide zone? I mean, you know, I think we have to, on all these kind of reports, as they exist on Syria and have been debunked royally, I think whenever we see the BBC putting something out, we have to, first of all, assume it's not true. Secondly, we have to investigate it for ourselves, okay, and draw our own conclusions. But, but really, again, as I point out, look at the timing. Biden has also just made the announcement at the WEF that if China invades Taiwan, um, the U.S. will go to their defense. Of course, the U.S. has been pouring weapons and aid into Taiwan for some time in preparation. So what we're seeing is, um, well, okay, they've, they've kind of switched from Ukraine to China now, as we sort of knew they would. And the rhetoric, which is being led by the BBC, an extension of uh, British Foreign Office and Intelligence and Security agencies, is now leading the way. And it's noticeable that not many other mainstream media picked up on this report, not many. Yes, and we'll just end uh, with this this slide here, uh, Vanessa, which is yeah. uh, Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, May the 5th, 2 p.m., uh, Putin's war crimes in Ukraine following the Soviet, <laughs> Soviet model of warfare, hosted by the Victims of Communism yeah. Memorial Foundation and the National Review Institute. So that's what that organization I... is. Um, but look, uh, what I just wanted to do here is if we come back to this BBC headline, uh, Xinjiang's police files inside a Chinese internment camp, because, you know, as you said, uh, those of, of us who were highlighting what was going on with Integ Integrity Initiative were criticized by the BBC for using hacked documents. But then when hacked documents arise that, that fulfill a, a narrative that they want to pursue, that's OK. Uh, well, the same goes for this internment business. Because we have a little bit of video here from the BBC from the 1970s, from 1971, I believe. So let's just have a look at this. As terrorism by the IRA increased and the bombing of civilian premises was added to the attacks on the army, it was the need for a military or at least a security solution that seemed paramount. And the Prime Minister, Brian Faulkner, who was also Minister for Home Affairs, took action accordingly. I have had to conclude that the ordinary law cannot deal comprehensively or quickly enough with such ruthless viciousness. I have therefore decided, after weighing all the relevant considerations, including the views of the security authorities, and after consultation with Her Majesty's government in the United Kingdom last Thursday, to exercise where necessary the powers of detention and internment vested in me as Minister of Home Affairs. Nearly 300 were arrested and interned without trial. By the end of the year, it was to be nearly double that number. 
So, you know, my point here, I'm not attempting to justify the IRA in any way, of course, uh, but, but the point here is that it was okay for the UK to pull this gag of course. in 1971, yeah. but it's not okay for China to do that when China is, without doubt, in face, facing an insurgency here. And, uh, if, and if there's any doubt, by the way, about what was going on when uh, the UK interned IRA prisoners, it wasn't uh, that they were being re-educated or being offered jobs. Uh, quite the opposite. Uh, we have the Irish Times here from uh, 2014, British ministers sanctioned torture of Northern Ireland internees. So it seems, once again, Vanessa, to be somewhat hypocritical of uh, the British government to attempt uh, to pull this gag to demonize China in this way, when uh, even if you believe what the headlines are saying, uh, what the Chinese are doing is no worse than what Britain has itself done in the not so distant past. Well, yeah, I mean, in the Second World War, Britain and the intelligence agencies were summarily uh, and privately prosecuting and executing what they believed to be Nazi spies. Of course, then the global war on terror, Britain was involved in Guantanamo in Abu Ghraib. It is involved um, in the torture and detention sites that were discussed by Laurent Créat in uh, Ukraine, um, managed by the, the Nazi contingent there. Um, and it was also, it's also had a hand in the UAE to torture centers in southern Yemen, where the British are prevalent again. It was a former British colony, of course. Yes. Okay, Vanessa, thank you for that. And uh, the countries that we couldn't quite read on screen there, just to uh, bring those for the audience, were Vietnam, Venezuela, North Korea, Laos, Cuba and China. So there we are. Well, isn't it interesting as the BBC suddenly focuses on China, it is at the very point where the BBC apparently doesn't want to focus on the Ukraine. So let's just pop this up on screen. We've called it the mystery of BBC disappearing Ukraine war. And of course, really to date, the BBC has been very keen on showing what it says is a lack of Russian progress by the use of maps. But all of a sudden, oh dear, all of this seems to have disappeared uh, at the blink of an eye. But uh, the reality is from the start of the war, the BBC has lied. The Ukra Ukraine has been credited with wins and gains that were simply not true. Russia has been attacked and belittled with a stream of misleading BBC propaganda, suggesting bad leadership and planning, military incompetence, bad strategy and tactics, poor morale, poor logistics and war crimes. But the truth is now emerging and the BBC lies are being fully exposed because the BBC is having to backpedal because, oh dear, things in Ukraine are not going according to the BBC's reports. So this was from a couple of days ago. Um, if you blink, uh, sorry, a day ago now, this, uh, if you blink, you'll miss it. But of course, we're interested in Ukraine. So let's activate the BBC's uh, front page and You'll have to look uh, quickly, otherwise you'll miss it. This should scroll through. Uh, but if you're looking for a major headline on Ukraine, it's very difficult to see. And the bulk of the reporting under a proper headline is way down. So on we go to the bottom, bottom of the BBC, where we see under local news, we've now got the war in Ukraine. And uh, the map is there, but let's have a look at that map. Oh dear, it's talking about Russia making small gains in eastern Ukraine. Small gains. Remember that the, that the territory controlled now by Russia is roughly, I understand, equivalent to England. 
in a mere 80 something days, but that's apparently small gains. Uh, and uh, what have we got now? The BBC talking about Russian assault on key Donbass city intensifies. Well, of course, it's not only the BBC pumping out the propaganda. Here's Air Force Times. Well, the headline is interesting. Russian troops plunge through Ukraine lines. Does that sound like it's uh, nothing? Small gains, just small gains. Yeah. Russian troops plunge through Ukraine lines in Donbass as fighting enters decisive week. But if you then read the text, it all tries to play it down a little bit more because it all is about, well, there has been some fierce fighting, but it's all moving a bit slowly. And uh, if you go on through, we've got a comment by Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby. He said the Russians are still well behind where we believe they wanted to be when they started this revitalized effort in the eastern part of the country. So they've no idea what the Russian plan was. But according to the Pentagon, the Russians are behind their own plan and they've had to revitalize the effort. Well, the military facts say that none of this is true. The Russians have been running to a consistent plan, which is now bearing fruit. So is this cognitive dissonance or misleading propaganda by the Pentagon press? Uh, it's probably a bit of both. This is the reality. Uh, I've chosen one source, but if people now look at the web, uh, look at the internet and do the research themselves, they'll find the detail. Uh, but uh, we've got more um, Ukrainian um, uh, villages and settlements which are being taken over by the Russians. If you say, but these are not big cities. Well, the whole point is that the Russians are being very careful in how they're approaching this battle. They're taking the ground, they're surrounding cities. And as we saw with Mariupol, they're easily capable of dealing with the bigger cities. But what we're seeing is report after report of Russian advances. The BBC doesn't want to tell this news to the UK or the world. And of course, that is part of the propaganda. But um, it's another reason that Ukraine is dropping off the front page of the BBC. Here's some more um, information which explains what's going on. So this is one of a number of clips where Ukrainian forces are now walking away from the battle. So that is uh, pretty clear, the message there. And it's, of course, it's not only that particular unit which is uh, spreading this message. The, the uh, narrative by these men is always the same. They 
now know that they face certain death if they continue fighting at the, uh, the front. They say that most of their military, trained military leaders have now been killed. Most of the troops now fighting are reservists who are very poorly trained. Uh, there's no technology and what, what they mean by that is that the, the heavy weapons they need are not getting to the front. And if they are getting to the front, it's not in sufficient quantities. And uh, there's no military structure working any, anymore. So basically, these men have been isolated and abandoned at the front. And they know that if they continue to fight, they are going to die. And they're coming to the realization that will be needlessly. Let's reinforce this uh, situation by looking at this uh, young Ukrainian officer who has also surrendered. Проводили реконструкцию местности и при реконструкции местности попали на позиции русских солдат. Вы как сами сдались? Да, потому что мне как офицеру первее всего это жизнь личного состава. Я не стал ставить жизнь ихнюю на какие-то амбиции или какие-то героические поступки, потому что положить, положить людей – это не героический поступок. Спасти людей – это человеческий поступок. Сколько человек с вами стоит? Семь человек со мной. А где ваше высшее командование было в этот момент? Была чтобы, чтобы в тылах. Так получилось, что среди всех офицеров кадровых осталось очень мало живых. И меня как кадрового офицера отправили с, грубо говоря, неопытными бойцами для того, чтобы я помог им организовать службу. Процентов 75 это люди, которые первый раз держат автомат в руках. А как кидают в такие горячие точки? Из-за брака кадров. Не хватает людей, да? Подготовленных кадров. Люди реально не готовы по военному делу. Может, по моральному какие-то поначалу была готовность, но когда приехали сюда и увидели реальную картину, не то, что показывают там по телевизору, да, мнение кардинально меняется и уже начинаются задаваться какие-то вопросы. Но когда задаются какие-то вопросы, за ними последствует негативное как бы, последствие. Вот. Поэтому как бы, я здесь своими солдатами, и я заберу их жизнь. So a huge tragedy that we've got uh, soldiers on both sides dying, but at the uh, at the end, of course, it is the West pumping in the weapons that have extended this war. As we'll see a little bit later in today's news, some unexpected people are now suggesting that Ukraine should be negotiating and coming to a settlement, even if they lose territory. But uh, we'll wait a few minutes before we get there. And so in light of what you've just uh, spoken about there, Brian, it's interesting that the US uh, is hosting or has just hosted another uh, Ukraine defense contact group meeting uh, there to go and they're pumping more and more weapons in, as we'll see in a second. 
So where are they going and what are they being used for? Is there anybody left there that can actually use the quantity of weapons that are being pumped in? And, uh, and if they can't, then what's happening to them afterwards? Well, the reality is the weapons are not coming in in a quantity to make any difference to the war. And the weapons that are coming in that reach the front, people are not trained properly to use them. So it still doesn't work. Basically, everything now has just been thrown against the Russian war machine, which the West is now discovering is uh, immensely more powerful than the BBC would have us believe. So first of all, we, we need the anti-tank missiles. We need the uh, short-range anti-aircraft missiles. Those were provided. They didn't make a difference. And then we've moved on to heavier weapons, the artillery. That hasn't made a difference. And now we've got calls for ultra long range uh, artillery. But the facts are that Ukraine no longer has a trained military structure to use any weapons that come into the country. So these weapons are simply being expended, destroyed, lost uh, at a rate which even the West can't uh, support. Well, just before we get comment from Vanessa on this, let's just look at a little bit of video uh, at the launch of the uh, Ukraine Defense Contact Group. A warm welcome to our distinguished ministers and chiefs of defense. Thank you for joining us virtually at today's second Ukraine Defense Contact Group. I'm Laura Cooper, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, Eurasia, and I will serve as today's MC for the contact group. We will begin with... So, well, that's all I really want to show. I just want to show that it, that it took place and, and who is there. So, uh, of course, there's uh, Mr. Austin. Uh, and uh, let's bring Lloyd Austin on screen here and see what he had to say. 20 countries announced new security assistance packages and many countries have donated critically needed artillery, ammunition and coastal defense systems and tanks and other armored vehicles. Uh, and he went on. Others came forward with new commitments for training Ukraine's forces and sustaining its military systems. There are too many countries to properly thank everyone here, but let me mention just a few standouts. And he talked about Denmark, uh, which had promised uh, to send Harpoon anti-ship missiles to Ukraine, along with launchers. Uh, Czech Republic for its substantial support, as it was described, uh, including uh, uh, attack helicopters, tanks and rocket systems, uh, and then new donations uh, for of artillery from Italy, Greece and Poland on top of that. Uh, but uh, he also said, uh, let me recognize the United Kingdom for its leading role in helping to coordinate security assistance and for significant quantities of British equipment to continue to flow into Ukraine. So uh, so that's that. Uh, Vanessa, what are your thoughts? Well, just quickly popped into my head. I mean, a lot of the weapons that are being used by Al-Qaeda and affiliates inside Syria, of course, came in from uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, particularly from Bulgaria, Serbia, and probably um, Ukraine. So it is possible with the number of um, uh, Islamic extremists that have gone to Ukraine that some of those weapons could be making their way back into Syria, particularly with, of course, the uh, high-level chatter that Israel is pushing for uh, escalation against Syria uh, and Iran and Hezbollah. So just a thought. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. And uh, just to bring uh, the Deputy Defence Minister from South Korea on screen, because of course South Korea are very interested in NATO membership. They also have been helping, so they're exploring ways to make additional contributions in light of our responsibility and role in the international community as a global 
uh, pivotal country. So there you go, Brian. That's uh, that's great. Well, it's it's not great, Mike. No, no it's absolutely not great. But what else can we say? Um, now, uh, pressure on Russia continues to build. So here's uh, Denmark, the local, and uh, United States plans to invest in Greenland military base. So this is Thule Air Base. Uh, it was uh, during the Cold War was a staging base for nuclear bombers, uh, and uh, but since then it's been mainly uh, for space-related operations and early warning of missile launches. Um, so the Dutch media here uh, have obtained a censored report from the United States that details plans to invest billions of dollars in this airbase. Uh, this is what they had to say about it. The plans came as a surprise to both the Danish Parliament and the Greenlandic Parliament. Uh, we we sorry we don't want to be talked about is uh, what the uh, Foreign Security Committee uh, members said. Uh, we want to take part when we're involved. This is our country, uh, so we want to know when something is happening. Now, uh, as I understand it, uh, there is a trilateral agreement between Denmark, Greenland, and the United States, and the United States is required to consult and con and inform other nations uh, whenever the other nations, I should say, whenever. Uh, they are making any changes to military operations in Greenland. Uh, but notably, uh, they're not required to uh, get any kind of sign off from Denmark uh, or Greenland. They just can go ahead and do it, but they've got to tell them first at least, which they're not doing. So I think that's uh, interesting. Well, it is interesting, Mike. And of course, Russia recently has been highlighting uh, the simple fact that the Americans have hundreds of bases around the world. I think the figure is around 700 compared to uh, virtually no overseas bases by, by, the, America, uh, uh, by, the, by the Russians. So um, what is this expansion about? If I had to guess a little bit, I think it's the uh, Americans need land bases because they're increasingly learning that their carrier forces are not capable of doing the job they thought they would be in in 2022. Uh, but as well as that, uh, there is this big drive for control of the Arctic at the moment. And we've got the uh, the, the, the Arctic Silk Road being developed by Russia and China. Well, that's and true. This is part and parcel of it as well. Uh, but let's head over to North Africa and bring Mali on screen. There it is, uh, so that you know where it is. Um, and the uh, Mali foreign minister was visiting uh, Moscow over the last couple of days uh, in order to uh, build relations and trade relations with Russia. Uh, this is what uh, Sergei Lavrov had to say uh, after the event, because he was rather critical about uh, the EU in particular and France in particular. So he said Mali is serious about pursuing specific agreements on the political aspects of organizing the delivery of Russian wheat. Uh, of mineral fertilizers, petrochemicals, which Mali badly needs amid the illegitimate Western sanctions. Uh, he went on to say, we understand but do not really like France or other EU countries' attempts to claim dominance in a particular region. Uh, I met with French Foreign Minister uh, Jean-Yves Le Drian and uh, current, head, uh, current High Representative of the EU for Foreign Affairs and Security Policy, Josep Borrell, uh, during the UN General Assembly session held in New York in September 2021. Uh, both of them expressed in a rather tense manner their concern about Russia expanding contacts with Africa, in particular Mali. Uh, they laid out their position in a rather colonial manner. Uh, Africa is the EU's area of responsibility, uh, influence and interests was the message he got from them. Uh, I cannot accept, he said, arguments of that kind because this is pure neocolonialism and inability to part with the old habits that led Africa 
to a clinical, uh, critical condition back then. Uh, I reject their claims and remind our EU partners that when it comes to the territories contiguous to the Russian Federation, they do not hesitate to come up with a variety of strategies, brackets the Arctic strategy or Central Asian strategy, uh, and then offer these strategies to the countries of the region, not to mention how deep the EU are established itself, uh, sorry, has established itself in Ukraine. These double standards are sad. Now, if anybody's in any doubt about the EU's interest in North Africa, let's just go back a few years to Ursula von der Leyen when she was still uh, the defence minister in uh, Germany. I think this was 2017 or 2018. And she was at the uh, Munich Security Conference. And this is what she had to say about Africa, NATO and defence. First of all, um, our collective defence, uh, we are ironclad committed to NATO. NATO of 29, um, that is Collective Defense Article 5. But there are problems and issues where I do not see NATO, but Europe has to be able to act. I was talking about Africa. This is not a typical place for NATO. We are very committed to NATO in other places, but um, Africa is a place where we need to be able to act as Europeans. And for that, we created the European Defence Union. Okay, in Africa, particularly the Sahel countries, the EU sees as its southern neighbourhood, and really, they view it as theirs. There is no question about that. Uh, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, Vanessa. No, not really. Okay, okay, that's that's fine. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, you know. <laughs> There's too much, isn't it? There's absolutely too much happening uh, yeah. to keep in your head uh, all at one time. Uh, okay, well, let's uh, come back to Liz Truss then. And, uh, well, she's been meeting the uh, foreign minister of uh, Lithuania uh, on uh, Monday afternoon. Uh, there they are, happy and jolly together. Um, and uh, so they were uh, signing a joint declaration to boost defence and security collaboration. Uh, and, uh, of course, they called for a coalition of the willing uh, to uh, deal with the situation with Ukrainian grain exports not being able to be exported through the Black Sea. Uh, and so the next thing was there were suggestions that the British Navy were going to get involved in this. Um, so let's just have a look at uh, some of the headlines to see what is going on here, because it's a bit strange. Uh, because here's the uh, Times uh, earlier saying Royal Navy could escort grain ships through Odessa blockade. So we are going to get involved in the Black Sea. But the Telegraph says uh, Britain unlikely to join naval convoy to break Russia's grain blockade. That's the more sensible headline, Mike, in my opinion. So it, it's all yeah. very strange. And then we've got the Express here saying significant risk talks over sending Royal Navy to Black Sea spark Russia clash fears. Um, and so it looks very much, Brian, like there is a bit of there's a bit of a difference of opinion in various circles, a bit of infighting going on. Well, we're seeing infighting everywhere. We're seeing infighting over this in UK because clearly the idea of the Royal Navy going into the Black Sea at the moment is just sheer nonsense. So presumably some of the military people are pushing back and saying to trust, you know, what are you on? Uh, but we've also, as we'll see in a minute, we've got infighting going on inside Davos. We've got infighting going in on inside the EU over Russian sanctions. So the Russians' actions in Ukraine have been so strong and so forthright that uh, now the sheer madness in the West is coming to the fore. They've been believing their own lies for a very long time. And now when it comes to putting in place proper policy, 
of course, we're finding that we don't have the wherewithal to do what we what we have said to the world we think we can do. I mean, uh, it's madness, un chaos and madness unfolding. Well, let's look at some more because here's Liz Truss. She was speaking yesterday to the Australian Foreign Minister, Penny Wong. Uh, and of course, if there's conflict with China over Taiwan, perhaps in the not too distant future, uh, I'm sure that Australia will have a very large role to play in that. I've no doubt that AUKUS, the AUKUS Defence Agreement, is part and parcel of that preparation. Um, but this is uh, what she tweeted out. And this is her pinned tweet this morning. Uh, great speaking to the new Australian Foreign Minister. UK and Australia are deepening our economic and security ties, including through AUKUS. We're committed to a free and open Indo-Pacific Indo and backing Ukraine in the face of Russian aggression. So again, we've got the Indo-Pacific narrative uh, pushing on. Yes, but uh, can we trust, trust, trust? I don't think so. Does she know what she's talking about? I don't think so. So we're going to get deeper into this morass. Well, luckily, there is a world saviour. And uh, if you're thinking in religious terms, you'll be wrong because the man, of course, is Klaus Schwab. Um, let me let him introduce his uh, World Economic Forum at Davos. So let's hear what the saviour of the world has to say. A very cordial welcome to the annual meeting 2022 in the spring of Davos. We are very glad to be together again in person. And of course, we have a very rich program. The theme of our coming together is history at a turning point. Government policies, corporate strategies. We will focus the program mainly on four different areas. First, the war in Ukraine, the aggression on Ukraine. And I have the particular pleasure to welcome a very strong delegation from Ukraine among us, composed by members of the government, composed by members of the parliament, by the mayor of Kiev and his brother and other mayors, and of course also by the young generation. Can I ask all our participants from Ukraine to stand up and to give them a special welcome? This war is really a turning point of history and it will reshape our political and our economic landscape in the coming years. But we also are at the tail end of the most serious health catastrophe of the last 100 years, COVID-19, and we have to reinforce our resilience against a new virus possibly or other risks which we have on the global agenda. We also have to address urgently the issue of climate change and all the other issues related to the preservation of nature. And finally, we look at the future of the global economy with great concerns. Too high inflation, too low growth, 
too many deaths. But what is particularly worrisome are the consequences, such as falling back of hundreds of millions of people again into poverty and possibly tens of millions of people dying of hunger. Well, I'm going to apologise to the audience because, of course, that was truly appalling to watch and to listen to. Do we seriously believe that uh, Klaus Schwab is concerned about millions and millions of starving people in the world? I find that very difficult to believe. Let's have a look at what he uh, actually had to say in addition to the extract in that uh, clip. The future is not just happening. The future is built by us, by a powerful community as you here in this room. We have the means to improve the state of the world but two conditions are necessary. The first one is that we, we act all as stakeholders of larger communities that we serve not only self-interest, but we serve the community. That's what we call stakeholder responsibility. And second, that we collaborate. So self-interest comes first. He's very happy with that. Get going with your self-interest, all you global companies. And if you can manage a little bit of help to the community and the millions of starving people, well, we'd probably be okay with that. So that's setting the scene for this despicable Davos meeting. The question is, who is Klaus Schwab? And who elected him to stand on a world stage pretending to be saviour? But of course, his rhetoric has swept up many people. So um, let's bring your friend back on screen, uh, Mike. <laughs> Ursula. Yes, the lovely Ursula. So um, what did she have to say? Well, um, this is the, uh, the main part. Apparently, according to her, Russia's sanctions are draining Kremlin's war machine. And yet the reality is that the West has now been shown unable to produce the weapons systems needed to sustain Ukraine. There's infighting as to who wants to supply weapons and not. But uh, the big lie coming out of her mouth is that uh, uh, they are draining the Kremlin's war machine. Well, compare that with this. We will hand in hand help Ukraine rise from the ashes. Well, why would Ukraine be in the ashes if uh, the uh, Russian war machine is being drained? There's something not working quite right here. We will support Ukraine in pursuing its economic path to becoming, path. sorry, European path to becoming an EU member state. Uh, Ukraine belongs in the European family. We stand with them. And I think this is a defining moment for all the democracies of the whole globe. Was all this discussed with the uh, German voter? I'm not so sure. It's an economic uh, relief operation with no precedent in recent history. Well, that must be true because it doesn't exist as an economic relief operation at the moment because there's still a war going on and they're pumping in the weapons. So let's come to this. This is New York Post, which kindly gave us a photo which allowed us to look inside Davos. And of course, here's Zelensky presenting to the audience, still in that same T-shirt. It must need a wash by now, uh, but I'm sure they're all listening intently. And I'm just going to comment that dirty deeds are done in dark rooms. And uh, what is being said here was just rhetoric, particularly unpleasant rhetoric against Russia. But let's have a look at uh, who Schwab is mixing with. And uh, here he is with uh, two of the senior Ukrainian representatives. 
I'm going to caption this because when he was talking earlier, I know that uh, many people were feeling that he was acting almost as the leader. Um, but do you get a warm feeling from these gentlemen? I'm afraid I don't. Uh, and uh, the pictures went on in a particular style. And I got the impression that even the New York Post was trying to warn people that something particularly unpleasant was unfolding here. So one people, one realm, one leader, that's a UK column caption, but I think it fits the picture uh, very well indeed. But here is the really incredible thing. So the Telegraph reporting that Henry Kissinger has said that Ukraine must give Russia territory. And there was a little subheadline here as Western unity on Russia sanctions phrase badly. So this is quite amazing that Kissinger, uh, very elderly but very influential, is clearly recognizing it's all over in Ukraine. And he recognizes the only way Ukraine is going to survive is by giving up the uh, lost territory in the Donbass. Uh, but it's, uh, it's uh, Kissinger here that's uh, making the headline. But of course, the real headline is Western unity on Russia's sanctions has just degenerated into vicious bickering and chaos. That's the reality of it. So what, what a scene and quite remarkable that uh, Henry Kissinger is the man who actually recognizes that this war is over. The BBC, of course, still trying to deceive people in UK and make them believe that the Ukrainians are going to fight on to victory. Uh, while recognizing themselves that it's over by pushing the, the stories down to the bottom of the well, page. Well, absolutely, Mike. Yeah. Yeah, okay. If you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to community.ukcolumn.org uh, and uh, you would be very welcome as a member and subscribe subscriber there if you could possibly help us out or via the shop, which is at shop.ukcolumn.org. Uh, but uh, do share any material you find on the various platforms uh, as you see fit. Now, uh, just a final reminder of the Panda event taking place uh, tomorrow in the uh, Barbican Theatre and yeah, the, the uh, sorry, the Western Theatre at the Barbican uh, Centre. Uh, and uh, so this is Nick Hudson, who's the chairman of Panda. He's going to present uh, a talk called The Quest for Open Science to a live audience uh, tomorrow, as I say. Uh, they are saying that uh, also, please, if you are going to this, feel free to join uh, them before the event from 6 p.m. and also afterwards from 9.30 p.m. at the uh, Lord Raglan Pub, which is 61 St. Martin's Le Grand, uh, London EC1A, which is a minute's walk from the venue. Uh, the details of this are on Eventbrite if anybody wants to go to that. Um, but I'm sure that will be uh, an interesting, a very interesting evening. Yes. OK. Well, thank you for that. Um, well, Debbie, thank you very much for uh, joining us today. We're going to bring you in to talk about monkey business. But I've got to say, first of all, I owe you an apology because, as you'll see from your slides, uh, you're named alongside the monkey business. So let's uh, let's uh, bring you on screen and uh, we'll get stuck into what is starting to emerge with monkey pox. But uh, Debbie, first of all, just set the scene a bit. Um, what's really caught your attention with uh, matters to do with uh, monkeypox? Okay, well, hello everybody. And uh, yeah, monkeypox is a huge, it's a huge story at the moment and it's really fast moving. So I just want to throw out a few things that are going on that I've observed. 
because there's a lot of theories going around social media there's a lot of different stories going around so i just wanted to clarify where we are now the cdc have raised the alert to alert level two now with regards to monkeypox which basically means that um practice enhanced precautions the alert above that alert three is to ban non-essential travel so we're only one alert down from that and what's interesting about monkeypox mm -hmm. is that it would appear that the genomic sequence for monkeypox was held by china uh, sorry russia and the usa and it would appear that the usa are now saying to russia have you released a monkeypox and russia and china as well are now saying have have the west re um, released a monkeypox and as Mike rightly highlighted on Monday, there was a tabletop exercise by the NTI, the Nuclear Threat Initiative, um, with regards to monkeypox. So I've been looking at either side. And so a couple of things that not a lot of people are talking about at the moment, and I'd be very interested to hear what our viewers and listeners make of this. But as Wuhan was emerging in 2019, bearing in mind smallpox which is a cousin it's in the same family orthopox virus family smallpox was eradicated yet however as wuhan was emerging in 2019 they were also doing um a scenario for smallpox and this was called pacific eclipse and i know i know we'll come on to maybe some slides on this but i'd like everybody to look at pacific eclipse which took place on the 9th of december 2019 and the who the usa cdc the us military the metropolitan police uk australia usa new zealand were all involved in this so there was a smallpox pandemic exercise in 219 and as i'm speaking to you now a week ago there was um, another exercise and this was called scenario leopard box otherwise known as event 202 so some of your audience and listeners might like to look at event 202 and scenario leopardpox. And this was at the G7, uh, where the German health minister, Karl Lauterbach, hosted a meeting talking about leopardpox and what would happen to young people. Now, if we take ourselves back and we look at monkeypox now as it is, what they're saying is they're going to offer people vaccinations, smallpox vaccinations for monkeypox. Apparently, we've got 5,000 smallpox vaccinations in the UK, and we've used 1,000 of them. They seem to be targeting the LBGT community. I have no idea why, but they seem to be saying that it could be sexually transmitted. All investigations are done at Port and Down. So I just wanted to throw a few things in there very quickly, because I know that we're, we're short on time, and I know that we'll talk about it probably more in extra and more in future news. But if anybody wants to check up with regards to what the UK HSA are doing and what's happening in the UK, you might like to look at the Green Book. We've talked about the Green Book before. Green Book uh, Chapter 29, because it would appear, and I'm only saying it would appear, that many scientists and some experts that indeed I've spoken to in the last 24 hours are suggesting that maybe monkeypox is a way to cover up the reactivation of latent viruses. Now, we've talked about this before in the news with regards to latent viruses such as uh, tuberculosis, such as herpes, shingles, 
um, and other latent viruses and even cancer cells is is has the mrna woken up some of these latent viruses um, are we looking at monkeypox horsepox rabbit pox maybe smallpox i don't know there's a lot of there's a lot of different stories out there online but and there's a lot of blame going on now so it's becoming a bit of a political situation so that's it in an essence brian can i just mention yeah. brian if, if anybody wants to to get uh a take on this uh, an opinion on this uh dr mike williams has published uh, an article on the uk column website uh and uh, go and have a look at that it's on the front page at the moment yeah excellent well debbie thank you for that excellent uh, summary let's let's try and put a, a little bit of graphic information to support what you've been talking about and first of all, we've we've got a number of uh, articles that you've you've picked from papers and and other places. All of them now suddenly out of nowhere talking about monkey business. So these are your slides. So we've got a Debbie on top. That's fine. And uh, here we go. So we've got the Daily Mirror: Monkeypox spreading in UK through community transmission with new cases identified daily. So. I think that's a pretty typical mirror one because there's lots of, oh my goodness, we should be panicking already. Um, we've got uh, this one here, monkeypox horror, EU nation begins mandatory quarantine as UK cases set to soar in weeks. Uh, sorry, I can't read where that, that one is actually from. We've got a monkeypox warning to anyone having sex with multiple partners. So they're really going for people's heads here. You don't know whether this is just somebody you touch in the community, you're gonna, gonna get monkeypox or you're sleeping with a partner and that's gonna give you monkeypox. Uh, iNews, monkeypox, new infections being detected daily in UK as experts brace for significant rise in cases. So what, are we being, what should we be frightened of most? The economic collapse, the rising uh, prices for foods. Well, now we've got monkeypox coming in. Mm -hmm. uh, this is huge stress on the nation. Uh, Yahoo News, monkeypox. Joe Biden says everybody should be concerned as 14 countries report outbreaks. Belgium introduces 21-day quarantine for all monkeypox cases. I've got to say, Debbie, this goes on. The mail, now this is where it gets interesting. The UK is stockpiling thousands of monkeypox vaccines and drugs as experts fear dozens of infections are slipping under the radar. And the independent US rushes to buy 13 million doses of monkeypox vaccine as a possible case detected in New York. So this is uh, where you've started to say, pay attention to what the, um, the preventative um, or, or the uh, are they preventative? Yes, they would be, I suppose, as a vaccine. It's a prophylactic measure. Uh, but uh, we, we're quickly jumping from monkeypox back to the idea of vaccinations. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, this is, a, this is an excuse to throw more vaccinations at the public, antivirals. Already companies, um, some companies, uh, there's one called, I forget the name of it now, um bavarian bavarian arctic they are manufacturing so many antivirals and vaccines now this is all a money-making exercise and another excuse to get as much medication into us as possible one right. of the um medications has, has not been passed yet by the mhra 
that has been passed by the FDA. It's called um, Tecoviramat and it's an antiviral. It's yet to be licensed, like I say, by the MHRA, but apparently it protects animals against monkeypox. Um, they've stockpiled two million doses in the US. So this is just another excuse to experiment, use medications on an emergency use authorization again on everyone and anyone and it will instill a lot of fear a lot of fear okay debbie and if we bring this slide on of course we're back to the world health organization now remember this is the same world health organization that as we speak is trying this massive power grab to be the sole authority for controlling pandemics in the world no more nation state you will do as the world health organization says uh, here they've got some key facts on monkeypox. They are saying it's a viral zoonotic disease. Uh, and they're saying that it typically presents with fever, rash and swollen lymph nodes and may lead to a range of medical complications. And you mentioned this in your summary. Uh, we've got Porton Down here in the mix. Uh, this is uh, the headline here. Now we have to deal with it. What's going on in the UK? with monkeypox. And uh, what what has Porton Down been doing? Why are they involved in this, do you think? Well, this is a notifiable disease and um, they're doing swabs and keeping tracking and tracing at Porton Down, obviously, because, you know, are we talking bioweapons? You know, this is this is where we're looking at. What, what grade are we looking at? What kind of damage can this do? And it's interesting, you know, because monkeypox is different from chickenpox and smallpox in that it has enlarged lymph nodes. So monkeypox is the only pox that's got enlarged lymph nodes per se. Okay, and then we've got other reports here where it's getting interesting because now we're starting to hear the term bioweapon being used. So uh, we on reporting here, Russia was planned, sorry, Russia was planning to use monkeypox as a bioweapon, claims ex-Soviet scientists. Uh, we've got Gates uh, here, rare monkeypox virus arrives, and who predicted, well, who seems to predict a lot of things. We've got another mirror report on the right-hand side. Russia looked into using monkeypox as a biological weapon, claims ex-Soviet scientists. So we've definitely got this flavour of um, accusations against uh, Russia, which I find interesting. And uh, this particular graphic um, is uh, attempting to show the cases springing up over the world. I don't know whether you can comment on this one a bit more. Yeah, that was actually um, a few days ago. The cases are, are obviously gone up since then. But it's interesting to note that um, today, I believe, I saw a report that says that uh, China are now blaming the West for a release of monkeypox. And China and Russia, as yet, don't have any cases, but uh, the cases are being exponentially rising in the United Kingdom. Okay, and then this Telegraph uh, article I, I found particularly interesting um, because uh, what we've got here, British child in intensive care with monkeypox, shock news emerges as scientists say they were warned three years ago, the disease risks filling the void left by smallpox if action wasn't taken. Tell us about this. How, how do we end up with the fact that uh, we've got a void left? What's well, the connection? It's very interesting you say that. 
well everybody um that was born in the uk um before 1971 will have been given a smallpox vaccine when they were three months old when they were a baby it was compulsory um and since then smallpox has been eradicated so no one's really paid much attention to it or have they and so now we see the re-emergence of monkeypox and i find what's interesting is everyone talks about zoonotic disease which is disease that jumps from animals to humans and bill gates walks around with the mor morbidity and mortality index glued to him all the time researching zoonotic diseases but we mustn't forget there is something that's called reverse zoonosis and those are diseases that jump from humans to animals but nobody ever talks about that so Smallpox was, has been celebrated as being eradicated and who de declared that it was eradicated from the world. And then all of a sudden we've had Bill Gates uh, a few months ago talking about smallpox. Now we've got smallpox um, futuristic scenarios going on and the leopardpox scenario is for 2023. So if anybody wants to, to look at that in a little bit more depth, like I say, it's a very fast moving story, Brian. And, and I think we're going to hear a lot more about it in the next few days and weeks. OK, and we'll just pop this uh, this graphic up on screen so that people can freeze the screen and go and check it as well. But you're reinforcing the evidence we're giving to our viewers and listeners um, by showing in this case uh, that there are, are formal studies that have been looking at uh, risks associated with these two particular things and the relationship between them so uh that that is very clear we'll leave people to do their own research on that but this is where it, it gets interesting again because we're back into this oh dear somebody seemed to be preempting what was going to happen here so 2021 uh you're talking about a monkeypox tabletop exercise uh and the report here is strengthening global systems to prevent and respond to high consequence biological threats this is more health security mike isn't it so this is more building the uh, machinery for controlling people yes but of course we, we've got to remember debbie that uh, covid19 was not a high consequence uh, uh, biological threat according to the uk government's categorization as of uh, march 2020. yeah exactly yes yeah, exactly yeah, indeed. And uh, this one is, um, I think this is the one talking about the nuclear uh, threat initiative where you're detailing the people involved. I know it's small print, but we want to give people the information on screen. Uh, so we've got a Dr. Ernest uh, J. Monitz, co-chair and CEO of the Nuclear Threat Initiative, former U US Secretary of Energy. Uh, Mr. Arnold uh, Bernhardt, Head Health and Security Solutions. Uh, Dr. Beth Cameron, Senior Director, Office of Global Health Security and Biodefense. And she's part of the US National Security Council. So what we're pointing out here is that as this is being um, uh, unleashed, or the information about monkeypox is being unleashed on the world population, the people associated with it, the planning, the tabletop exercises quickly come back into the level of US national security. So what is going on here? Is this a natural outbreak or is there something a bit more sinister going on? 
Uh, and this is part of the modeling that you were talking about. Uh, so we've got a, a design um, scenario, uh, starting off with an attack in May the 15th, or May the 15th, 2022, where unfortunately there's been a monkeypox outbreak in what they call a country that they call Brinia. Uh, this is remarkable that just like COVID-19, all of this has been predicted and modeled beforehand, Debbie. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if you if you research, go back and you look, you can you can see that quite clearly things have been discussed on closed doors, often in plain sight. Um, and it would see that seem that this has been on the agenda um, for quite a long time. Indeed. So I couldn't resist uh, uh, this. And I I did put the cheeky headline, be alert for monkeys. But we've got Reuters here. Britain offers smallpox vaccine as monkeypox cases spread. Um, and the right-hand side, we've got UK HSA. You mentioned them a little bit earlier in this segment. And they urge everybody to be on the alert for two key symptoms, what to look for. Um, but the other area, which I think we'll finish on, is you're also pointing out that when we get into the health and safety executive, we find that they're actually calmly talking about approved lists of biological agents. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, like you say, where it differs from, from COVID. Um, and it, it's actually, um, it's too small for me to read there, Brian. I think you can read it, sir. Three, is it? Um, Three says, uh, we just pop this one on screen. Uh, this giving gives the groups of the hazards uh, to human beings. So group one is unlikely to cause human disease. Group two can cause human disease and may be a hazard to employees. Group three can cause severe human disease and may be a serious hazard to employees. And group four causes severe human disease and is a serious hazard to employees. So we're, we're in a, what do we call it? A morass of a swamp of people don't know what is a naturally occurring disease and, and what has presumably been pre-planned if we want to be a little bit conspiratorial. Okay, Debbie, I think we'll leave that uh, segment there. And I think you, Mike, have got uh, a little bit to add on the bio industry. Well, I just wanted to, to mention uh, this. Um, this, is, uh, this is actually, I think, a year old now. Uh, the UK Global Sequencing offer a new variant assessment program. Um, and uh, this is a presentation that was originally given by uh, the lead of the new variant assessment program, NVAP, Dr. Lena Inamder. Um, so let's just have a look and see what they're saying here. So this is their global offer. Uh, they will want to offer the assessment of variants for SARS-CoV-2 for potential impact on viral characteristics. They want to offer rapid sequencing. Um, they want to uh, say, that they say that there's a lack of ca uh, capacity and capability globally to system uh, systematically undertake genomic se sequencing and so on. And they provide a nice uh, variant identification pro process uh, flow diagram there for us. But it's a summary we should have a look at mainly here. So they're saying, Thanks to the achievements made over the last 70 years, the UK is rightly recognized as a world leader in genomics. The UK's genome sequencing programs have demonstrated the crucial importance of genomics uh, to in the fight against COVID-19. The UK has sequenced over half of all the COVID-19 viral genomes uh, that have been submitted to the global database. 
uh, and the new variant assessment platform will help boost sequencing cap uh, capacity so that we're better prepared for future emergencies. And they tell us that they're working with the World Health Organization to offer our UK genomic uh, capacity to help other countries uh, to analyze new variants and offer our training and resources to help them build their capacity. And they're forging collaborations with national and international partners to ensure the NVAP support is coordinated uh, and targeted to maximize global public health benefits for pandemic, pandemic response. Um, so a year later from when this uh, uh, presentation was given, uh, the new variant assessment program announced yesterday is going to continue expanding its work to other countries and regions worldwide to help global health security efforts. Nine countries and territories have now received direct support from NVAP. Um, and that is Brazil, Ethiopia, Kenya, Nigeria, Pakistan, uh, Chile, Trinidad and Tobago and the Cayman Islands and Singapore. And then over the, the coming year, the next 12 months, NVAP will continue to work with World Health Organization Eastern Mediterranean region to improve regional genomic sequencing hubs in Amman, Abu Dhabi and Morocco. And it will also continue to work with World Health Organization Southeast Asia, WHO Europe, Africa Centers for Disease Control and the Caribbean Public Health Agency to provide technical assistance, training and procurements of reagents and so on. So this is an ongoing thing. Uh, they don't want to let the uh, dead horse actually die. They're going to keep flogging it and uh, as much as they possibly can. And Debbie, because uh, this is, as you've said many times, the, the next uh, area of major growth uh, financially. And the UK wants to be upfront. Now, they said in that, just before you said a comment, Debbie, they said on that that, uh, uh, what did they say, that the UK had provided 50% of the viral genomes uh, that have been submitted to the global database. Well, a year later, that's down to 25% because the US are catching up. But nonetheless, uh, the UK wanting to set itself as the, at the forefront of this. Yeah, completely. Genomics, the genomic business, the genomic industry, the COVID industry has started the whole biotech and genomic sequencing. And we're right, right in the middle of it with our life sciences program. So yes, UK laboratory, global laboratory central, I would say global genomic sequencing central too. Yes. Okay, well, we've, uh, we've put out the sources for all the information that we've just given on, on highly uh, interesting subject of monkeypox. So I wonder what the BBC would have to say. No doubt they would attempt to say that we're pushing out misinformation. Debbie, you've been focusing a little bit on Mariana Spring and you've suggested to me that there's more to this young lady than meets the eye. Um, let's just bring uh, part of her LinkedIn on screen here. Um, so a specialist disinformation and social media reporter at BBC. Uh, uh, somebody's come back and said nobody does disinformation better than the BBC's anti-disinformation unit, which is probably true. Um, but when you've had a little look into her, um, she isn't quite the uh, innocent, uh, bright-eyed young girl that we might think. What have, what have you actually discovered about her? Well, Mariana Spring has sprung from nowhere, seemingly, and uh, her history is interesting. Uh, she's written for The Guardian. She's written for um, all sorts of publications, including Private Eye. Um, she spent quite a long time in Moscow. Um, she was correspondent for the Moscow Times. She, when she went to university, she uh, studied Russian um, and French. So she's fluent in, in Russian and she reports in, in Russian as well. 
but um, then I found, I, I don't know, I think it was something that you said to me, Brian, because I was thinking, well, she's being, she's following Sander van der Linden on Twitter, which alerted me to, as we've talked about before on UK Column, the uh, social decision-making laboratory in Cambridge um, and the Go Viral game. And I just wondered if, if Mariana Spring were, had learnt from Sander van der Linden to play the Go Viral game on us. Um, so I looked to see if there were some connections and I think, um, I think I found some, didn't I, Brian? Some connections with Mariana Spring and Cambridge and Sander van der Linden, who le let's not forget is also connected via Rory Finnin uh, to the Ukrainian studies program in Cambridge as well. So it gets quite interesting when you look in a little bit more depth at Mariana Spring and you oh, wonder, is she a journalist? Or is she more? Well, um, we'll just bring Maybe. these images up on screen because they emphasize the sort of work she's doing, but war on truth here. Uh, Mariana, one baby, three photos and a web of lies. Mariana Spring on disinformation, conspiracies and dealing with trolls. Uh, and then we get on to the Royal Television Society, fake news, the broadcaster's dilemma. So this is this is big stuff, but this is where you're heading, um, that she's very interested in this interesting man called Sander van der Linden. And uh, what he is doing is uh, using social misinformation in order to vaccinate people against misinformation. So this is like psychology on steroids, I suppose. But let's have a look at this little video clip about the Go Viral, a new game. Go Viral is a five minute choice-based game that invites you to play through three different levels that are based on some of the most commonly used strategies of deception. Well, misinformation is a threat to everyone in every country worldwide. And so the game is meant to be a fun and engaging experience to learn and resist fake news. So in the game, you're dropped into the world of misinformation and your objective is simple. You are to expose the tactics that are used in misinformation in an attempt to gain psychological resistance against them. Go Viral introduces these theoretical elements of threat and counter-arguing. You learn the strategies that make such misinformation go viral in the first place. Turning that into a game is merely an, an attempt to make it more scalable. In order to learn how to spot and resist misinformation around the coronavirus in the future. And go play the game at www.goviralgame.com. So there we are, but uh, Debbie, we've got the game, but of course what the specialists are doing are using the techniques in the game on, on the public at large in order to change their perception of, of news and information they, they hear. So this is very high level applied psychology for, we might say journalistic, but I'm going to say for political purposes. I'll just let you respond yeah, to that, but a, we will do more This is a psyop. Yeah, it's a psyop within a, a psyop. And, and the Royal Television Society was attended by ITV, ITN, um, Sky, BBC, Cambridge with Van, uh, Sander van der Linden, and of course, Mariana Spring with this information. So, you know, are we grooming disinformation experts? That's my question. And is Mariana Spring a journalist or is she more? Okay, thank you very much for that. I think we'll end, end, yes. end there. 
uh, as always, the clock beats us. So we'll say to uh, both Vanessa and Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. A big thank you to our guests, wherever you are in the world, and particularly for people tuning in at very odd hours of the day, as far as we're concerned, from foreign climes. So it's great to have you. I will also say that there will be a UK column news at the same time tomorrow. And uh, please join us for that. Um, this is part of UK column expanding, but also uh, working to bring a, a broader uh, subject base to our audience and to respond to people who have been saying to us for some time we need more UK column newses so I do hope that you will join us tomorrow as well but we've got an extra, extra coming today yeah that's it thank you very much we will see you in a few minutes for extra time and the UK column news team will be back at the same time tomorrow thank you bye bye <laughs>